Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, everybody at home. I trust you're all keeping well. Uh, a shout out to Pastor Ben once again. Happy birthday, brother. Uh, thank you very much for your input, for your example, for the blessing that you are to not only me as an individual, but to us as a church. Um, thank you very much. And we do thank God for you as we celebrate at this time. Uh, questions are actually quite, quite good, actually. They're usually synonymous, synonymous with the like to say curiosity. What, you want to learn something. Why is the sky blue? Uh, why do things smell a certain way? There's nothing wrong with asking those. They, are, they could also be synonymous with challenge. Um, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Um, they could also be used in connection to reflection. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my existence? The Lord Jesus had many questions asked of him throughout his ministry, his earthly ministry, throughout the Gospels. And I reckon even today, you might be asking questions of him as you look at the world, and especially over the past year, asking questions of the Lord and thinking, why are things going the way they are? What I really like about the graciousness of our God is that he is not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of our questions. He is far bigger and exceeds far more than what our pity minds can present to him. He has more than enough answers to address our questions, our doubts, and our uncertainties. The question that arises for us is this. When he gives us an answer, will we accept it? When he gives us an answer, will we receive it? Because I know speaking personally more often than not, if it's not something that I like, then I'll say that he hasn't answered me. So the responsibility falls on us and how we respond. But this morning, it is not about us. It's not about the questions that we ask of him. Today, we're going to look at some of the questions, actually two specific ones, that Jesus asks of other people and in turn asks of us too. We are going to have these questions as you look through them. I was sharing with a brother earlier on this week. There's a set of like 100 questions that Jesus asks various people throughout the Gospels. Some are religious, some are his disciples, some are seekers. But he asks a number of questions. And these questions that I'm going to present to you today are questions that we must answer. We must be able to answer for ourselves personally. Now, Jesus doesn't ask these questions for him to get to know something because he knows all things. He knows what is in the heart of man, as you read in the Gospels. More often not, the questions that Jesus asks is to force the listener, to force us to reflect, to question, I guess you could say, where we're coming from. And in that asking, in that reflection, then challenge where we're coming from as well, to, to discover that personal challenge directed at us. So if you want to bow your heads in prayer, I'll open in a word of prayer as we look at the scriptures today and see what the Lord Jesus asks of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a good, good father. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but are continually working and shaping and molding us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And in the uncertainties of life that we see, we thank you that you are in complete control, that you are the first and the last. You are the alpha and the omega. You are the beginning and the ending. And thus we come to you now and put our trust in you to lead us within your word now to more of yourself. Please give us soft hearts to respond to your spirit. 
Please give us open ears to hear your voice. Please to give us a clear vision to see your hand at work in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when you look in the scriptures, when you look at the gospels and you see Jesus ask questions of various people, you'll notice that he's speaking to them specifically. He's speaking to them directly. And even though we may not be in the exact same situations, the principles and the themes and the truths that Jesus is trying to communicate are still just as applicable now that it was to them back then. For example, he asks a number of questions. For example, when he says to the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verse 28, the question he asks is this. Do you believe that I am able to do this? That is the issue of faith, of where one trusts. In regards to the blind man at Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8, verse 23, he says, Do you see anything? Once again, addressing his power as he deals with this particular issue. Another question, he rises in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, and he goes, If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And that is the whole issue of stewardship, what God has entrusted. And in John chapter 1, verse 38, when he confronts two of John's disciples who are following him, he asks them, what do you want? And that aspect of identity. So you see in just these four examples that took place two millennia ago, the transcendent truths of faith, power, stewardship, and identity are just as relevant and applicable to you and I now as it was for them then. Thus, today's questions I want us to examine today can be considered foundational, if not basic. But for us as believers, especially with the complexities of what's taken place in 2020, we have these increased tensions regarding the nature of God, regarding how he deals with us, regarding the person of Christ and how he's involved with us, about the role of the Holy Spirit and about how he empowers us. And because there are these tensions that have arisen, there has come this, this drifting away within our own individual lives from biblical truth, from godly values and from righteous living that seems to be taking place in the world. And so it seems appropriate to look at these two vital foundational questions regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's found in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn there. To provide a bit of context, the disciples have just witnessed the Lord Jesus rebuke the Sadducees and the Pharisees because they approached him and asked for a sign in verses 1 to 4. He then corrects and teaches his disciples, warning them of the yeast of the religious leaders and told them to be on guard against it in verses 5 through 12. And so when he gets to Caesarea Philippi, he asks this of his disciples. If you've got your bowls, look at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read down to verse 15. He says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And it is these two foundational questions we're going to look at today. These two foundational questions that we, in the 21st century, 
We, on the 29th of November 2020, we need to be able to answer as well. And so we read this, and the first thing he says, what others say. Who do people say the Son of Man is in verse 13? Now, if you do a brief internet search about the various views of Jesus, you'll have numerous pages, web pages, that give a breakdown of their views. Some of these you may have heard, others may be new, but these are some of the current perceptions regarding the person of Christ. Some say that he's a manifestation of God. Others say that he is a wise, enlightened teacher. Others say that there's a prophet of God, but only one of many prophets. That he's a great healer, that he's an incarnation of God's love. Still other views say that he's merely a myth or a fairy tale to enable us to deal with the situations that we encounter in life. So if you went around today and you asked some of your work colleagues, some of your friends, some of your, some of your schoolmates, and just asked them to you, who is Jesus Christ? You will end up with a whole bunch of reasons, a whole bunch of views, much like that list I gave you. Actually, that is a really good way to stir up a spiritual conversation. Just with people in general. This is a, okay, here you go. I wouldn't plan this, but here's tool number one. Tool number one in starting a spiritual conversation with people around you. Ask them this question. To you, who is Jesus Christ? That's it. That's it. Just ask a person for their idea of who Jesus Christ is. And I guarantee you, you'll have a number of different ideas from a number of different people that you encounter. But once you start hearing them, don't jump in and cut them off. Don't jump in and say, oh, man, that's idiotic for you to believe that. No, just listen. Listen, because you ask them for their opinion. Let them give their opinion. Then, tool number two, ask them this. Would you like to know what he says about himself? That's it. Two questions. Would you like to know what he says about himself? And if they say no, then don't worry about it. Because they don't want to hear. They want to stick to their opinion. They want to stick to their ideas. They want to hold to their views. If they say yes, then let's open up the Bible together. This is what Jesus says about himself. There you go. Two tools to go reach out to somebody. Use it this week. Okay? All right, Tommy? We got that, Tommy? Yeah, brother. All right. Good stuff. Two basic tools. That's, that's got nothing to do with my sermon, so I won't edit that out, but that'll be there. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Here we go. Now, everybody will have an idea behind their view. When you ask them to you who is Jesus Christ, there might be an emotional reason as to why they either believe or don't believe. There might be an intellectual reason as to why they either believe or don't believe. There might be a moral reason between, behind why they do or don't believe on who Jesus is. So they have a whole bunch of different views. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered as you read this, why Jesus asked what others thought of him? Have you ever wondered why he posed that specific question to his disciples? Is it just like the setup for the knockout punch? I don't know, because that does actually follow on, which we'll look at a little bit later. But what it does do is actually gives them an idea, or the, the disciples he asks, it's giving them an idea of what the social climate is. Their reply when he says, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
Considering all that has taken place up to this point, from the public acknowledgement of God the Father at his baptism in Matthew 3, to his teaching that stood out in the, the great Sermon on the Mount on Matthews 5 to 7, his miraculous teachings and divine authority displayed in Matthews 8 and 9, the appointing and the anointing, or, or, or sorry, the appointing and sending out of his disciples in Matthew 10, and his continual involvement with others as he ministered to those in need, as he imparts to them hope. In a time of despair, in Matthews 11 to 15, when he asks this question of disciples in, in verse 13 and says, who do others think I am? They raise up the current climate of their situation. They raise up because remember, Israel is a land that's under oppression. There are people that are looking for hope. There are people that are looking for deliverance. There are people that are looking for the Messiah. So when they respond, they say, oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he looked different, he lived different, and he spoke different. At the very least, Jesus spoke completely different from anybody else, including the religious leaders of the day, because he astonished everybody who, as he spoke as one who had authority. It says that in Matthew 7.29. When they say Elijah... They says, well, it's all one that comes in the spirit of Elijah in Luke 1.17. There was prophesied, prophesied that before the Messiah came, that there'd be one who came in the spirit of Elijah. If you look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. Um, thus the things Jesus had done and the things Jesus had taught caused people to talk. Could this be the one who comes before the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? And Jeremiah, the reason why Jeremiah is mentioned is because Jeremiah was a prophet of the new covenant when the law of God would be written on the hearts of man and placed within their minds. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, something that Jesus alluded to many times. Now, this is an A list of names, all godly, all righteous, all standing for the kingdom of God. But there was one factor that tripped them up and that separated them, or should I say that separated Jesus from them. You know what that was? They were all men. They were all human. Great men, yes, but they were all men nonetheless. They were all men that were susceptible to doubt, as John was when he asked, are you the one, when he sent his disciples to go see Jesus, are you the one that we're waiting for or should we wait for another? They're all susceptible to fear. Remember Elijah, after that great victory on Mount Carmel, he ran away from Jezebel when she threatened his life. And all are susceptible to uncertainty. Look at Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who cried as he saw Jerusalem destroyed. And when you look at this, there are two very important sort of by lessons we need to look at here. Here's the first one, two important. The first one is this. Never let the greatness of men, even godly men, take your eyes off Jesus. Never let the greatness of men, even godly men, take your eyes off Jesus, which is easy to do. We see brothers and sisters in the Lord who are living by faith, claiming the promises of God, living in victory, living in abundance, and unintentionally we can have our focus and our adoring of them Instead of upon Jesus. Jeremiah openly stated this. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from their flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5. I look around this room, and there are people that I know, even within GCC, who are great, godly men and women. 
And I'm so encouraged that I have the privilege of knowing them. You could probably name a number of people in your own lives, not even within GCC, but outside of GCC, who are great encouragements to you, who are great blessings to you. And, and I think that is awesome. And I'm not discouraging that. I'm not belittling that. I'm not dismissing that. What I am saying is this, never let the testimony of an individual take you away from the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. Here's what's really cool. I think a great, humble man or woman of God is somebody that points you to Jesus Christ anyway. A great man or woman of God will never take the glory of themselves as they direct you to him. Because they understand. And I've, I've, not, I've, I've either gone to Pastor John, I've gone to Pastor Ben, I, I might have gone to Jono, anything like this and made mention of something, and all they've done is direct me back to Jesus Christ. That's, so, that's what we need to be aware of. See, this isn't necessarily the fault of the person being adored, and it may not even be the fault of the one doing the adoring, because it can happen unintentionally. But I do want you to be aware that Christ, is to be our focus, that Christ is to be our center, that Christ is to be our all, for it is Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, Romans 8, 34. And, and, so that's the first thing. Don't let the greatness of men take your eyes off Jesus. And two, don't let the views of this world govern what the scriptures mean. Don't let the views of this world govern what the scriptures mean. We see scholars, when we see biblical scholars, when we see intelligent men, men of the academia, make claims that are contrary to the truths of scripture. I mean, they may even be people who we admire. They may be people we respect. Whenever these people who are so-called qualified make statements that are contrary to what the Bible teaches, we can feel threatened. We can start to either be swayed, well, they've studied, therefore they know. Or they've studied, therefore they might have an insight. Maybe they've discovered something. When we feel outnumbered or feel outgunned intellectual, intellectually, we can, not saying we will, but we can allow the views of others to determine the truth of Scripture or to determine, to determine the heart of God or to, to determine the purpose of the church, especially when you have such a spirit of the Antichrist that is raising more and more of these doubts within the world today. As we touched on last week, it is the spirit that denies that Jesus is the Christ. If they have the doctorates, if they have the degrees, if they have the diplomas and the qualifications, we can be governed by their educational ability to sway our view regarding God's word. Many, many years ago, I read in a Time magazine article. I was only a very, very young Christian. I wouldn't have been a year old in the faith. But I read about this biblical scholar who broke down the Bible. And, and what he did was he actually gave this verse... And he said, the, the letters in red will be the, the words that Jesus actually said. The letters in yellow were the ones that he may have said. The ones in blue would be what he didn't say. And the ones in black was probably what he borrowed from somebody else. And he broke down this verse. And like John chapter 23, verse 27, he said this. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the color of the words as we go through. Remember, red, he did say. Yellow, he may have said. 
Blue, he didn't say at all, and black, he probably borrowed from somebody else. And this is what it broke down as. It said, woe to you, that's red, teachers of the law and Pharisees, that's yellow. You hypocrites, you are whitewashed tombs, you look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of the bones of the dead. That's blue. He didn't say that at all. And what he borrowed was, and everything unclean. I read this, and I'm like, wow, why? Because it's in a Time magazine. I mean, these are intellectual people. These are smart people, far smarter than I am, some boy from West Auckland. And as I shared this with some people at church, a beautiful, godly woman by the name of Bianca Adler, she's a Romanian Jewish woman, she came up to me, and she put her hand on my shoulder. She was tiny. She was a tiny little lady. She put her hand on me, and all she shared with me was Luke 20, verse 46. And she said, beware the teachers of the law. Beware the scribes, of what it said in the King James. And actually what she's saying was this. Beware of the intellectuals that profess to know things that they don't know really anything about. Beware of these things. If one has the Spirit of God, then one has truth. God has given us an unction. He's given us an anointing by the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 2 verse 20. In order that he is our primary teacher when we spend time in the word, when we are with him, when we are in relationship with him, when we are dwelling in his presence. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 27 we read this. As for you, the anointing received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, I'm not saying don't come to church. I'm not saying don't listen to a preacher. I'm not saying don't listen to someone else who's been sharing the word with you. But always remember, we have an unction, an anointing of the Spirit of God, whose job is what? to guide us into all truth, to teach us all things concerning Christ. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transforms us, our mind and our hearts, from the inside out. So, here's the deal. This is what everyone else has to say about Jesus. And as I mentioned before, the reason why the disciples mention Elijah, John the Baptist, and Jeremiah is because the atmosphere of that day was pointing to what society was looking for. Now, if you were to ask other people, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? You'll hear a whole bunch of things. He's a charlatan, a complete fraud. He's a liar. He's a crazy man. He's a person who is a great teacher but never can profess to be God. And you can ask, to some belief systems, he's an angel who came down in human form. To others, he's just one of many prophets that's shared. You know what that shows me about the society of today? That they don't want anything really to do with Jesus because they are looking to get away from him. They want to diminish who the person of Christ is because if they hold Christ up to who he is, that requires from them to live a certain way. It requires them to submit to his authority, to his lordship to his majesty. That's what we see today. And you see this in today with the fact that they're moving further and further away from biblical values, from biblical truth, from the person of who God is. Now, people are entitled to their opinions, yes. 
people are entitled to their thoughts. For example, Nicodemus called him rabbi in John 3. The Pharisees called him fake in Luke 7. When Simon asked him if, if he knew the type of woman that was touching his feet, he wouldn't allow this. The Romans called him king, although it was sarcastically done in Matthew 27, 29. But just because someone thinks a certain way towards someone else does not make them that reality. I could say that Kenny is Samoan. Kenny, can you come here please? Just to show everybody at home. <laughs> I could say Kenny is Samoan, and everyone at home would believe that right now. I'm all right, bro. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I could say Kenny is Samoan, but until you see Kenny, then you think, nah, Joe, I don't think so. But it doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter what I think about. Are you Samoan, Kenny? No. No. Okay. <laughs> okay, give him a round of applause, please, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank you very much. Right now, Kenny's like, what? Why'd you do that, Joe? Sorry, man. <laughs> but it doesn't matter what I think about him, it doesn't change the reality. He told me he's not Samoan. Okay, he told me it doesn't, just because somebody has a view of who Jesus Christ is, does not make him that reality. It is why when God said to Moses, I am that I am, God gave his name. He didn't ask Moses to name him, God gave his name to, to Moses. Christ gives his name to us. He is not to have someone name him, he stands alone for who he is. Thus, this is the setup. This is like the left jab for the right hook. The left jab, he says, the setup for the follow-up question that applies to you and I now and must be answered by all humanity. What is that question? What you say. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Here's where it gets real for the disciples. Here where the, here's where the rubber hits the road for you and I. And it's the answer that we have to give regarding who Jesus is. How do you answer that? We see Peter's answer as he confidently proclaims, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. An answer that is not an intellectual recognition, but is a divine revelation. If you look at verse 17, the Lord Jesus says that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It was revealed by my Father in heaven. It was revealed by the Spirit. It's a divine revelation by which we see God, uh, sorry, see his calling as God's chosen deliverer. If you read in Isaiah 9 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his position as the promised Messiah, as was foretold by these prophets. Isaiah 9-7, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, none of, none of us here would argue this. Nor would we disagree with Peter's proclamation. We, would, we wouldn't. In fact, if I was to pose this question to you and Jesus asked of you right now for an answer, that would probably be your response. The thing is, we have this added advantage of hindsight. We know how the final days of Jesus played out. We know how his earthly ministry went. We know of his fallen night around the table at the Last Supper we know about him calling out his betrayer. We know of his night in prayer following through with, with God's plan. Oh, sorry, following through with his arrest. We know of him being 
uh, of his friends running away. And we know the, about the joke of his, his trial. We know of his beatings and his mockings at the hands of the Romans. We know of the scourging that, that tore his flesh from his bone as he shed his blood. We know of him being nailed to a cross, taking upon himself the punishment for my sin and for your sin. We know of his complete isolation as God the Father turned his back on him as he bore the brunt of the judgment, of God's judgment for that sin. We know all of this. We know how he paid the penalty for, for your sin and for my sin. And we, as we read, the penalty is death from Romans 6, 23. But we also know that of his resurrection of the dead revealed that the price he had paid, the sacrifice he had given, completely satisfied God's standards. We know all of this. Therefore, when the question is posed to us, who do you say that I am? How then do we answer that question with the added, added advantage of complete knowledge? Honestly, how would you answer it? You might, maybe you would answer it like Thomas did as he bowed before the Lord and said, my Lord and my God. Maybe you would see him as saviour as you ask him to save you from your sin. Maybe it's acknowledging him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords as you submit to his authority. Maybe you might answer, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, as the angels did in his presence. Maybe you'll answer as Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. But maybe there might be a number of things that you may say, and maybe this, it may be more or numerous titles that the Lord Jesus has. Billy Sunday said this, There are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. I like that. 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I suppose it is because he is infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. Whatever these names or titles you use to answer this question asks us this. Reflect on your answer and why you would answer in that way. Because how you answer it reveals what you really believe God is and who He is. How you answer that, it reflects our views, it reflects our ideas, and ultimately it reflects our conduct for the Lord Jesus. Because we can know stuff. We can know stuff, but we forget it straight away, especially if what we know doesn't fall into line with what we're doing or with what we expect. And you see this demonstrated with Peter in chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. It's not up there. If you've got your Bibles, turn to this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. See, it didn't fall in line with what Peter wanted. It didn't fall in line with what Peter expected. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Here's the thing. Just like Peter, we make the acknowledgement. We recognize it humanly, but if it doesn't fall into line with how we think things should happen, then we buck against the trend. Then we kick up a stink. Then we try to make demands because it doesn't fall in line with what we expect or what we are hoping for. But like what the Lord Jesus said to Peter here, it means then that maybe I'm viewing things from my human perspective as opposed to his divine perspective. Maybe the view of Jesus Christ you have is something that gives someone who gives me something as opposed to the master and the captain of my salvation. Maybe I'm looking at him who just gives me blessing as opposed to seeing him as the one who has rescued me from that which condemned me. That's why our view of Jesus, how you answer that view of Jesus Christ, yeah, it's wonderful to have here, and it's wonderful to have here, but it has to be demonstrated in what we do out there. Because this is what moves on to our third point, what Jesus explains. You see, Jesus then said to his disciples in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The revelation of who he is as the Messiah, the Son of God, the revelation of what he's going to be doing is then reflected in what is done. The expectation of how we are to live. See, the call itself is quite amazing that it has just been given in the context of Peter's rebuke. And that explains it quite plainly, the expectation of discipleship, the expectation of following, self-denial. It is the bearing of others' burdens and following. It is manifest in the lives of the disciples who did this. It is the call for you and I to do the same if we are claiming to be as disciples. But I love what I love about this explanation is that in the light of Scripture, we have the blessing of hindsight. We have the privilege of God's word. We have been empowered by his Holy Spirit that we can accomplish this for Christ, who has granted us the means by which we can fulfill his standards of his discipleship. And, and what's really exciting, it's even in our failures we can do this too, like Peter. Peter who denied Christ. Peter who denied him three times. Peter who then was called back to himself. While I was talking with some students on Friday, some Christian students, and I was sharing with them the greatness of God's goodness, the, the beauty of God's grace, that yes, he has called us to some high expectations, but he also makes, makes provision for our weaknesses as well, for the failures that we, and the mistakes that we do, much like what he done here for Peter. And you look at the way the Lord explains this, okay? So how is, it, how is this done? How is discipleship fulfilled? He does this by explaining. So we have self-denial is the first one. And we do this all the time. We know what self-denial is. We'll deny a certain career choice for the benefit of our family. We will deny, deny certain things we do in our time, to deny ourselves certain indulgences for the benefit of our health. We'll deny certain entertainments for the consideration of others. What the Lord Jesus has revealed to us in him is the beauty of being called his child in Romans 8, 17, how we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, how we'll seek to deny the lusts of the, of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life for all of that fades away in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And then, and then we'll buy 
in turn value Jesus Christ as precious. See, the reason why we deny certain things is because we see the value in something else. When we married, what we're doing is we, we are committing ourselves to one person because we found one person that is so precious, that is so dear, that is so valued by us that all others are considered pale, just pale in comparison. And so we, we will commit to that one person. That's what we'll do. When we look at the person of Christ, he is the greatest of all. He is the most valuable of all. He is the most precious of all. And that in comparison to all else, the world pales in comparison to the greatness and to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the reason why, the reason why he doesn't look that to us is because we've taken our eyes off how beautiful he is and been captivated by the temporary things that are below. But he says that's what it starts with. It starts with self-denial. But the way self-denial is achieved is by appreciating what you have. And so I encourage you to spend time in the Scriptures looking at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Looking at who he is. That's the whole idea of this question. Who do you say that I am? I would encourage you to answer that question to its fullest. And then as you look at the fullness of this, you'll fall more in love with him and have no issue with with turning away from sin, with no issue with turning away the temporary things of this world because he has just been so wonderful that he's so beautiful. That's, that's the view that, that motivates us to deny self. The second thing we're taught is to take up our cross. The Lord Jesus talks about counting the cost in Luke 14, 28 and how the cross is linked with burden and yoked with death in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. As well as, you know, we, we learn about this, about bearing one another's burdens and to so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2. But you look at this, the, the promise of Jesus Christ, we are told that when we take up his cross, we are told that his burden is light. But we're told that. And we're told that in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, being yoked, that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. And the reason why it's light is because he's carrying it all. If you're going through difficulties, if you're going through struggle, if you're feeling the burden of whatever role that you're going through in life, he says, come with me, I'll take your burden. I'll take your yoke. Your yoke. It's a matter of us being there along with him. He wants to join us in the journey. It's, I mean, as a parent, you, you discover this. You see the difficulty your children are going through, and you want them to learn. You want them to grow. You want them to get stronger. And you're also there to support them as they grow. That's what the Lord Jesus desires of his children now. So we have self-denial, taking up our cross, and lastly, to follow. To follow him. In our following of him, God literally makes us. We are told that in Matthew 4.19. We are continually being worked with. We are continually being shaped. We are continually being involved with. You look at Philippians 1.6. Such is the blessing of following God, of following the Lord. See, that's what we are called to. This is what discipleship look like. Self-denial, taking up his cross, and following. And you can't do, for it to be effective, you can't do one without the other. These three things are interlocked. They are interlocked. Okay, self-denial, great. 
I'll self-denial, but I won't take anything up. The problem with self-denial is this, and this is the nature of what we are as people. I'm going to be finishing up soon. This is the nature we have as people. And I don't know if you've done this. If you've ever tried, and I've having difficulty at the moment, you ever tried eliminating food from your diet? I mean, some people do that, that whole keto diet where it's just all fat things and you, and you have no carbs. I, I don't like that personally. I love my bread. But you have no carbs, all right? And you think, okay, when you do self-denial like that, what happens? It becomes more tempting to you. It becomes more tempting. You know, oh, I'll just have one. You know that never happens. You have one, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. You do this with sin, and you just say, ah, oh, I'll just stop that. I'll stop looking at that. I'll stop doing this. I'll stop going here. I'll stop hanging out with these people or whatever. And then what happens is this. If you don't, if you don't, if you're self-denial, it doesn't go any further than that, what happens? It starts to become more attractive, doesn't it? Oh, I'll just have one look. I'll just go hang out one time. It'll just be one drink. And much like me and carbs, ho, 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 it's all in. That's why we're told, self-denial, then what? Take up your cross. We've got to take up his cross. You can't just have self-denial without taking up his cross. Just like you can't have a taking up his cross and not be, have self-denial. You can't take up your cross and then carry on doing what you used to do. That doesn't work. Because there's a conflict of kingdoms, a conflict of nations. It doesn't work. So you could, okay, you can take up the cross, but then what are you going to do? One thing I've noticed, when you do it, like, so at the gym, you have this big sled that you've got to push, and it's really hard to push. So you, you carry it. Once you start moving, it's a lot easier. Once you get going, you're going. You're pushing it, and it's moving. Okay? Then once you stop, it gets hard to start pushing again. So if you're standing there holding the burden and not moving anywhere, what happens? It just gets heavy. You see, you, start, you fail to see the point. Why am I standing here denying myself of one thing and standing here doing nothing else? Why am I just standing here? Then you'll find out I'm getting tired standing here holding this and then you want to put it down and then the self-denial becomes, the things you self-deny, denied yourself, become more attractive again. That's why it's self-denial, taking up the burden and then following. When I'm pushing that sled at the gym, I'm always looking at one as a timer so I know when I'm finished. And then when I'm going the other way, it's the mirror. So I'm looking at myself. It's a win-win. I'm sorry, that's a terrible joke. Okay? But you know what I mean? But it's like that, that when, you, when you have your eyes focused, when you're following, then when you're pushing, that becomes secondary. The things that you're not doing then become secondary. We're told, when we've even sung it, how all things fade away in comparison to the beauty of the cross. That's what... So that's what discipleship is. That's what I'm encouraging all of us, including you at home. That of self-denial, that of taking up your cross, and that of following him. That's, what, that's what's called upon us as we follow Christ. But once again, that comes down to this, doesn't it? Not who others think he is. Who do you say that he is? And how you answer that will determine the steps that you take next. John Piper, I'm going to close with this quote. John Piper says this, Consider Jesus. Know Jesus. Learn what kind of person it is you say you love and trust and worship. Soak in the shadow of Jesus. Saturate your soul with the ways of Jesus. 
Watch Him. Listen to Him. Stand in awe of Him. Let Him overwhelm you with the way He is. Because when He overwhelms you, oh, you'll have no problem denying yourself. When He overwhelms you, you'll have no problem taking up His cross. When He overwhelms you, you'll follow Him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. So with that, brothers and sisters, if you'd just like to bow your heads and we'd close on a word of prayer as we continue to meditate on and dwell upon who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you so much for the questions that you pose to us. Father, I pray that we will have our hearts and our minds and our souls focused upon you and upon you alone that we will see the beauty of your person, that we will stand in awe of the greatness and of the majesty and of the glory that you have as the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died for us and gave himself for us and rose again so that we too might live with you. Father, we are humbled by the privilege it is to be called your son and your daughter. We ask for you to give us clear eyes now to see you to give us hungry hearts, to, to thirst, and to chase after you. Father, that we will have no problem denying ourselves, taking up your cross, and following you with everything we are. So, Father, we ask now that you, that you take us, you shape us, and you draw us more to yourself now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters. God bless. Take care as we listen to our sister who sings us out now. See you. Way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is free.